Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 31, the Second Saxon War. I think I have to apologize for last week's oversized episode. I'm trying to keep the length to 25 to 30 minutes with the tolerance up to 35 minutes. 43 minutes was definitely too long. The problem came about because we reached one of those moments of high drama when the three strands of the investiture controversy come together. The struggle between imperial power and the magnates, the popular movement demanding church reform, and the expanding role and conception of the papacy. Today's job should be a touch easier, because we will predominantly focus on the first of these three, the escalating tensions between young King Henry IV and his barons. I said should, because it's not that simple. One of the problems are the sources. Up until now, most of our sources, be it Widukind, Liutprand of Cremona, Tietmar of Merseburg, Wippo, Hermann of Reichenau, etc., were usually supportive of the emperors, but not excessively biased. Some had to be taken with a grain of salt as they skipped bits or put their favorite rulers into better light. The chroniclers we have for the second half of the 11th century are different. Since the controversy between emperor and pope goes to the heart of people's identity and beliefs, there is no neutral or semi-neutral observer. The main sources, namely Bruno, who wrote the book of the Saxon Wars, and Lambert of Hersfeld, whose annals provide a detailed account of Henry IV's reign, are both heavily biased against the emperor. And when I say biased, I really mean biased. Bruno in particular accuses Henry IV of all sorts of treachery and licentiousness, up to the rape of nuns, incest with his sisters, premeditated murder, etc. Henry IV's much less effective PR machine retaliates with accusation of papal love affairs with Matilda of Tuscany, etc. And as for the protagonists themselves, we have a register of 387 letters and notes written by Pope Gregory VII between 1073 and 1084, whilst we have just eight letters from Henry IV, and it can be assumed that whilst Gregory likely dictated them himself, whilst Henry's are the work of his chancery. With almost all the sources painting a negative picture of Henry IV and big black holes where his own PR machine should be, left historians with a serious dilemma. It is hard to dismiss the accusations entirely, since one of the consistent demands of Henry IV's enemies was for him to be subjected to an inquiry into his crimes. They would not have done that if he had been whiter than white. But how much of that are we to believe? And if we do not believe it, what was he like instead? In the 19th century, German historians tried to dismiss the notion of Henry IV as a debauched and incompetent ruler. Modern historians like Gerd Althoff have concluded that there was something, even to Bruno's accusations, and attribute at least some of the difficulties of his reign to his personality. Stefan Weinfurter highlights the unwillingness of Henry IV to adhere to the traditional methods of imperial rule and conflict resolution as a major contributing factor to his failures. Well, I will try to stay as close to the current consensus as I can, but with the sources as they are, I'm likely to fall for my own biases as we go through the story. Apologies in advance. All angry comments, please DM me. If you like what you hear, feel free to put it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. With this, let's get into the story. Henry IV had begun his personal rule in 1065 after he'd been declared an adult at the ripe old age of 15. But as was the case with Otto III 70 years earlier, 
the transition to personal rule was not like flicking a switch. It was a gradual process, where the dominant figures during the regency are gradually phased out and new advisors are phased in. As we heard last week, imperial power had been receding under the regency of Agnes of Poitou, but once Anno of Cologne had abducted the young king and created a new government, things became nearly anarchic. Archbishop Anno of Cologne and his co-conspirators could not retain control unchallenged. They had to concede a role to their archenemy, Archbishop Adalbert of Hamburg-Bremen. That does not stop regular conspiracies aimed at removing Anno and or Adalbert. It seems that all that the magnates cared about was to expand their personal power as quickly as possible, presumably thinking that once the king would get a handle on the levers of state, the party would be over. We have little evidence about the rapaciousness of the secular lords, but there's some juicy stories about our two archbishops. Our friend Anno was accused of putting his family members into the plum bishoprics all across the country, and indeed, one of his brothers became Archbishop of Magdeburg, a cousin became Bishop of Halberstadt, and another was earmarked to become Archbishop of Trier. That latter one did not make it, though. The people of Trier were sufficiently irritated about not having any say in the matter who their bishop should be, that they captured the pretender upon arrival and had him thrown down from the highest cliff. Now, Aralbert was no better. He tried to take over some of the most storied and richest imperial monasteries like Malmedy and Corneli Münster. When he tried to take over Lorsch, the famous Carolingian abbey south of Frankfurt, he had to contend with a bunch of very angry monks. They quite understandably argued, I cannot really see any reason why the Church of Hamburg, 550 kilometers north from where they are, would be a suitable spiritual overlord. With the government split right down the middle, imperial policy effectively ceased to function. After the debacle of the papal schism that Agnes had created, a journey to Rome and a lavish coronation would have been paramount to restore imperial prestige. As part of the settlement of the schism, Pope Alexander II was happy to crown young Henry IV. He might also have hoped to entice the emperor into a campaign against the Normans, who had become a little too full of themselves after helping to end the schism. Equally, the northern Italian bishops wanted their king to come down and sort out the Pateria uprisings in Milan and other cities. I think I mentioned this popular movement last week. The citizens of Milan and elsewhere had requested a clean-up of their diocese, where literally all priests had paid for their offices and the canons lived in luxury with their wives and children. When the archbishop refused, he was thrown out and lacked the military resources to get back in. What did not help the bishop was that the pateria enjoyed the support of at least parts of the papal administration. Basically, it was high time to go down to Rome. Twice did the imperial army muster in Augsburg, and twice they ultimately decided not to go. Squabbling amongst the magnates was the main reason. Even though Henry IV had nominally become the effective sole ruler of the kingdom in 1065, he was shown in 1066 that his power was for naught when his magnates gang up on him. The one thing that changed upon Henry's maturity was that the balance of power shifted away from Anno of Cologne to Adalbert of Hamburg-Bremen. Adalbert had no difficulty in convincing the king that Anno did not have any interest in his well-being. As we heard before, Henry IV never forgave Anno the hijacking in Kaiserswerth. 
One of the few things that most historians agree is that this event caused a massive trauma in Henry IV. Having been held at sword point by his barons aboard a vessel was one thing, but watching his own mother failing to come to his aid, even siding with Anno over time, must have created a sense of abandonment. And most of his resentment was directed at the architect of the coup, Anno of Cologne. Now, based on the mantra that my enemies' enemies are my friends, Adalbert became Henry IV's go-to person. The anti-Henry propaganda machine accused Adalbert of spoiling the child king, telling him that he could do whatever he desired as long as he managed to get absolution on his deathbed. According to the super-biased chronicler Bruno, Henry IV maintained two to three mistresses at any time and had ordered all the pretty girls to be brought to him, if necessary, by force. I would not doubt that a 16-year-old with no parental supervision would indulge himself in bad behaviour. And I can also see that Adalbert would not admonish the young king too severely for transgressions, since he was his only political asset. However, I doubt it needed all that for Henry IV to support Adalbert against the hated Archbishop Anno of Cologne. Adalbert had been a close associate of his father, and was a supporter of a strong imperial power. Anno and his associates on the other side represented the powers that wanted to expand the baronial prerogatives at the expense of the empire. In 1066 it came to a showdown in Trebur. There the magnates had come together in one of those now regular conspiracies and decided to put an ultimatum on the young king. Either he gives up on Archbishop Adalbert or he will be deposed as king. Henry IV and some of his followers raced to Trebur to confront the princes. To give you an idea how precarious the position of the king already was, let me tell you a story about what happened the day before the meeting. This is the story as it is told by Lambert of Hersfeld, the other main chronicler and opponent of the Salians. According to him, the king stayed not in his own royal palace at Trebur, but in a nearby village that belonged to the Abbey of Hersfeld. It seems there was nothing there to feed the royal party, and the peasants refused to hand over the goods. A bloody fight between the royal soldiers and the local population ensued. In the fight, either a lowly peasant, or, shame of shames, a dancing girl, felt the Count Werner, who commanded the royal bodyguard. Werner was brought before the king, and whilst he lay on the ground in mortal agony, the bishops refused the dying man the last rites, until he handed back an estate he had received from the king, but which the abbot of Hersfeld claimed was his. Now all this happened in front of the king. His man was lying there, and the churchman refused him the last sacraments until some money issue was settled. And not just any money issue, but the reversal of a donation the king had made himself. And why was his man lying there? Because the Abbey of Hersfeld had refused to feed the royal troops, something they were obliged to as an imperial abbey. Nothing shows more clearly the powerlessness of the young king, and nothing explains better his deep-seated animosity to his magnates. Not much has to be said about the fate of Adalbert of Bremen. A king who cannot feed his men and protected his wounded soldiers cannot decide who should be his main adviser. Adalbert was to go, more precisely to run back to Hamburg, protected by the few soldiers the impecunious king could spare. 
A few weeks later, Henry IV falls severely ill. So severely ill, the doctors give him up. The magnates begin discussions about who should succeed. But he recovers, and by Pentecost, he's back in the saddle. No chronicler says it, but my sense is that it is right after the meeting in Tribor and his recovery when Henry IV decides that enough is enough. No longer can an emperor rely on the oath of fealty from his dukes and counts, nor can he rely on the support from the imperial church as his father had been able to. A new form of royal administration is required. It is around now 1066 that Henry IV begins his major castle building project around Goslar. His father had already begun the process of creating a coherent royal territory around the silver mines in the Harz Mountains. This is a different concept to the 10th century imperial duchies, which were administrated through assemblies and vows of fealty. Not here. These royal lands around Goslar will be administrated by ministeriales, unfree men trained in war and administration. Mighty castles are built on the top of mountains, and instead of enfiefing it to loyal men of noble descent, he mended with his ministeriales. He put the administration of the royal territory not in the hands of a count, as would have been the case 50 years earlier, but appoints a governor, prefectus, who could be hired and fired at will. The largest and most important of these new castles was the Harzburg, not far from the imperial residence in Goslar. Harzburg was not only one of the largest castles built in the 11th century, rivaling Folk of Anjou's mighty constructions, it was also designed as an imperial residence and administrative centre. Nothing indicates more clearly the changes of times than the fact that the emperors are leaving their indefensible palaces in the plains and move behind ten-metre-high walls on mountaintops. The Harzburg contained an imperial palace as well as a monastery, and Henry IV had his brother Conrad, who had died very young, as well as his first son buried in this richly decorated chapel. He also transferred the imperial regalia, i.e. the imperial crown, the holy lands, etc., onto the Harzburg. The Harzburg was designed by one of Henry IV's closest confidants, a man he would be by his side for a long time, Bishop Benno of Osnabrück. Benno came from a family of ministerialis, i.e. was not a free man. He joined the clergy and got an education in Strasbourg and Reichenau before joining the career path through the imperial chancery. He was made Bishop of Osnabrück in 1068, and he was a smart and effective administrator, and above all, a gifted architect. He not only built the Harzburg and other castles, but he was also the architect of the final remodeling of the astounding Speyer Cathedral. He was a brutal taskmaster, though, who had laborers beaten if they failed to work hard enough. Now back to the castles. They were designed to project royal power. But there were nothing new not even in Saxony. The nobles of Saxony had engaged in the construction of mountaintop castles decades before Henry IV started his building program. As I said before, the construction of castles is a clear indicator of deteriorating central power. And since the last years of Henry III, and then even more under the Regency, central power had declined and castles have risen in unison. And you may have noticed that the names of people have changed. Otto of Nordheim, Rudolf of Rheinfelden are all named after their main possessions, aka their castles. Up until then, major aristocrats were referenced by their ancestry. The Erzenit Conrad, 
or the Conradina Eberhard, etc. If that was not distinctive enough, they were named after their titles, the Markgraf Eckerhard of Meissen, the Duke Godfrey the Bearded of Lower Lorraine. Some made it even easier, by calling themselves just Welf, Welf 1, Welf 2, Welf 3, Welf 4. But from now on, aristocrats are referred to first and foremost by the name of their main castle, rather than their family or title. What this castle building also means is, the model of peace by edict of Henry III had ended, making the life of the peasants in the empire just that little bit harder. Whilst the walls of the Harzburg and other fortifications are going up, the empire is shaken by a sequence of scandals that further undermine the imperial reputation. The first one is entirely of Henry IV's making and concerns his marriage. Long ago, when Henry IV was a child, his father had engaged him to marry Bertha, daughter of the Counts of Savoy. It seems a rather odd choice, since as future emperor he should get married to a Byzantine princess, or absent that, at least the daughter of a king, not the daughter of a mere count. Bertha's family had, however, one key asset, which will become important as we go further, and that was the Alpine Pass of Mont-Cenis. This pass, south of Mont Blanc, was of major strategic importance as the connecting road between France and Italy. As the empire already controlled all other Alpine passes, Mont-Cenis was the missing link and made sure no other power could get into Italy. In principle, the emperor should not need the Counts of Savoy for that, since Monsignor was in Burgundy and Henry was already king of Burgundy. But Burgundy was a kingdom very much in principle. In practice, Monsignor was held by the Count of Savoy, and the Count's prize for the past was to become grandpa of an emperor. To make sure Bertha was at least brought up to an imperial standard, she was delivered aged six to the imperial court, where she grew up in the household of Henry's mother, the Empress Agnes of Poitou. In 1066, shortly after Adalbert had been sent packing and the king had recovered from his illness, it was deemed time for Henry IV to finally marry little Bertha, as had been agreed all these years ago. By 1069, Henry IV wants a divorce. At the Reichstag in Worms, he stands up and declares that he simply does not think he and his wife are a good match. He says that he's simply tired of pretending that the relationship was okay when it was not. He does not accuse her of anything that would warrant a divorce, but he, be it by fate or divine order, cannot be in a marital relationship with her. He therefore asks, for the grace of God, to be released from these chains. He hopes that she would find a happier life in another marriage and, if needed, he would swear that the marriage had never been consummated. This strikes me as a very modern grounds for a divorce. The fact that two people just simply are not meant to be together. But an 11th century royal marriage is not an agreement between two adults looking for fulfilment and happiness. It is a political contract. And that meant liking each other is entirely optional. The Pope sends Peter Damien up to Germany to explain these rather simple facts to the young king, and he accepts the verdict. Henry and Bertha will from then on have a very strong relationship, where she will stand by him even in the most challenging moments and be more loyal than his own mother was. And the couple had five children. Step back. What was that? Henry IV asks for a divorce because he doesn't think a relationship is possible and wants her to be happy with someone else, and then, when forced, 
fulfills the marriage vows, and things turn out okay. I mean, I might be going out on a limb here, but it seems as if the most obvious point is completely overlooked by most historians. Bertha and Henry had grown up together since they were five. They have grown up in a super tense environment where Empress Agnes was clearly completely out of her depth most of the time. His older sisters have been either sent away to become abbesses or have died early. It is not impossible that Henry and Bertha felt more like siblings than marital partners. That would explain his insistence on her being blameless and his wish that she would be happy with someone else. It would also explain why the couple could maintain a relationship of trust and friendship despite his attempt at divorce. Now that was scandal number one. Now for the second one, which involves the recently appointed Duke Otto of Nordheim. Otto was a Saxon noble of the highest rank. He was put in as Duke of Bavaria by Agnes in 1061, which is an odd choice to start with. As we had heard before, the Saxon nobles had been on a roll with attempts at the life of the Salians. The brother of the Duke of Saxony may have tried to murder Emperor Henry III in 1048, and in 1057, the Saxon nobles conspired to have Henry IV killed, a child of seven at the time. There is no indication that Otto of Nordheim was involved, but it's unlikely the Saxons kept him in the dark. The attempt on Henry's life was foiled as allies of the king encountered the Saxon contingent by chance outside the royal palace and killed them all. Nordheim then appears again as a co-conspirator in the coup of Kaiserswerth, something that cannot have endeared him to Henry IV. In 1069, a mysterious event happens. At a stay at one of Otto of Nordheim's estates, one of Henry's ministeriales is ambushed and killed. Things are being investigated, but nothing comes of it. Since life is cheap and ministeriales still serves, nobody ascribes much significance to that event. In 1070, a certain Enigo, a thug of ill repute, claims publicly that Otto of Nordheim had tried to hire him to murder the king. Otto of Nordheim strenuously denies the claim. In classic 11th century fashion, when it's one man's word against another's, the resolution has to be through trial by combat. Otto of Nordheim initially accepts the ruling, but then does not appear on the set dates in Goslar to fight for his honour. Under the circumstances, Otto could demand a judgment in default, which the Saxon nobles assembled as the jury granted. Otto of Nordheim was stripped of the Duchy of Bavaria, all other fiefs, and even his allodial possessions. Nordheim is declared an outlaw. According to the chronicler Bruno, this was all a plot by Henry IV to strip Nordheim of his possessions. Bruno alleges that Nordheim would have been killed on the king's orders even if he had won the trial by combat. I find in particular the letter hard to believe. The trial would have taken place in full view of the Saxon nobles, and if Henry would have wanted to pull a stunt like this, his reputation would have suffered immeasurable damage. That, in combination with a string of assassination attempts by Saxon nobles, and the mysterious death of his ministeriales the year before, makes it likely there was something to this allegation. Guilty or not, Otto finds support from other nobles, including from Magnus, the son of the Duke of Saxony but he failed to bring the whole of the duchy behind him and had to submit to the emperor after a year of fighting. Henry IV imprisons him and Magnus. Otto of Nordheim is released in 1072 and some of his inherited lands are returned to him, minus the chunk Henry wanted to keep. 
Magnus, who after his father's death had become the Duke of Saxony, is kept longer, presumably as insurance against another Saxon uprising. Now let's go on to the third scandal. Now after Nordheim's fall, the Duchy of Bavaria had been given to Welf IV upon recommendation of Rudolf of Rheinfelden, the powerful Duke of Swabia. Now over the years, Rheinfelden and the Duke of Carinthia, Bertolt of Zeringen, had mended their relationship. It had been strained when Rheinfelden had been made Duke of Swabia, a role Zeringen thought was his. That created a major political block in the south, where Rheinfelden could rely on support from both the Duke of Carinthia and his old friend, Welf IV, the newly appointed Duke of Bavaria. In 1072, Henry IV accuses Rheinfelden and his two dukes of a conspiracy against him. The three dukes, he claims, have tried to assassinate him and make Rheinfelden king. Lampert and Bruno, as one would expect, declare that this was again a plot by the king to bring down another of his magnates. Egon Bosov brings up a theory that blames Henry's concerns down to a reform of the monastery of St. Blasian, which affected imperial prerogatives. Again, who knows what went on. Maybe Henry IV looked at the comparatively easy win over Otto of Nordheim and thought, hey, this is a brilliant tool to break the power of his magnates. Or Rheinfelden looked at the events in Saxony and thought to himself, time to strike now before this king gets ever more powerful. Or it was indeed a misunderstanding over the gorgeous monastery of St. Blasian. Anyway, this time Henry IV does not succeed in deposing Rheinfelden or the other two dukes. In 1073, they sign some sort of let's forget about all that and be friends again agreement. That came just in time. Because events are now accelerating. In the summer of 1073, the Saxons had enough of Henry's castles. What had fueled the flames was that Henry, cash-strapped as he was, did not pay the ministeriales who manned the castles. The ministeriales hence forced the local peasants to bring food to them, and if they failed to do so, would see their villages burned and their wives and daughters raped. At least, that is a story told by Bruno and Lambert, it may also be that the villages belonging to the castles were obliged to bring the produce by law and custom, as was the case with the castles the mighty Saxon lords had built. The only difference was that the soldiers manning Henry's castles weren't Saxons, but from elsewhere, possibly from Swabia. In June of 1073, the magnates of Saxony, including the bishops of Magdeburg, Halberstadt, Hildesheim, as well as Hermann Billung, uncle of the incarcerated Duke Magnus of Saxony, and Otto of Nordheim, appear before the emperor in Goslar, demanding an audience to discuss the castle building program. Henry IV does not grant an audience. In fact, he leaves the Saxon magnate standing outside the castle whilst he is playing dice with his mates inside. This is often seen as an unnecessary insult that justifies the upcoming rebellion and puts Henry IV in the wrong. On the other hand, imperial dignity required that the king would not yield to demands of anyone showing up in front of his castle. And also, Henry IV remembered what happened when he rushed to Tribur in 1066, when the princes met to discuss the fate of Archbishop Adalbert, an experience he was not too keen to repeat. What added to Henry's confidence was that he'd been assembling an army for a campaign against Poland, which he believed he could use to suppress any Saxon uprising. The Saxon magnates are now infuriated to the max. A month later, they meet at Hüttensleben for an assembly. 
There, Otto of Nordheim gives a famous speech, which I'll try to translate here. Thanks, by the way, to Deeple.com, whose free translation service become a lifesaver for this podcast. Now here is Otto of Nordheim. Quote, The calamities and disgraces that our king has brought upon each one of you for a long time are great and unbearable. But what he still intends to do, the almighty God permits him, is even greater and more severe. Strong castles he has erected, as you know, numerous in places already firm by nature, and placed in them a great multitude of his vassals, and abundantly provided with weapons of all kinds. These castles are not erected against the heathen, who have completely devastated our land where it borders theirs, but in the midst of our country, where no one ever thought of making war against him. He has fortified them with such great effort, and what they mean for this land some of you have already experienced. And if God's mercy and your bravery do not intervene, you will soon all experience it. They take your possessions by force and hide them in their castles. They abuse your wives and daughters for their pleasure when they please. They demand your servants and your cattle and all that they like for their service. Yes, they even force you yourself to bear every burden, however odious, on your free shoulders. But when I imagine my thoughts what is still waiting for us, then everything that you are now enduring still seems to me to be bearable. For when he will have built his castles in our whole country at his discretion and will have equipped them with armed warriors and all other necessities, then he will no longer plunder your possessions one by one, but he will snatch from you all that you possesses with one blow, will give your goods to strangers and will make you yourself, you freeborn men, oblige unknown men as servants. And all of this, you brave men, you will let happen to you? Is it not better to fall in brave fight than to live a miserable and ignominious life being made a shameful mockery by these people? Even serfs, who are bought for money, do not endure the unreasonable commands of their masters, and you, who are born free, should patiently endure servitude? Perhaps you as Christians are afraid to violate the oath which you have paid homage to the king. Indeed, to the king you have sworn. As long as he was a king to me and acted royally, I also kept the oath I swore to him freely and faithfully. But after he ceased to be a king, the one to whom I had to keep loyalty was no longer there. So not against the king, but against the unjust robber of my freedom, not against the fatherland, but for the fatherland and for freedom, which no good man surrenders other than with his life at the same time, I take up arms, and I demand of you that you also take them up. Awake, therefore, and preserve for your children the inheritance which your fathers have left you. Beware, lest through your carelessness or slothfulness you yourselves and your children become serfs of strangers. End quote. Now, before you go and think, that here is the first outburst of genuine German nationalism. I have to stop you there. When Nordheim talks of patria or fatherland, he talks about Saxony, not Germany. And when he talks about freedom, he's not talking about human rights, but ancestral privileges, the freedoms as they will be later called. But arousing the speech is nevertheless, and the Saxons raise an army and head towards the Harzburg where Henry IV had gone to hold out while his agents bring over the army initially meant for the Poland campaign 
to defeat these obnoxious Saxons once and for all. The Saxons set up camp on the opposite hill and sent their demands to the king. He was to dismantle all his castles in Saxony and dismiss his false counsellors. The Harzburg was almost impregnable, and so the Saxons blockaded the castle's food supplies while throwing large stones down on the fortifications from their camp on the opposite hill. Henry's hope of support from the army readied for the war in Poland was quickly dashed. The mighty princes shared many of the views Otto of Nordheim had articulated in his speech. They could see that, if Henry was to prevail in Saxony, he would proceed to build similar castles in Bavaria, in Swabia and anywhere else in the country. Rudolf of Rheinfelden and the two southern dukes also had not forgotten that Henry had tried to nail them just a year earlier. So, the princes withdrew their troops. Some magnates led by the Archbishop of Mainz even began negotiations with Otto of Nordheim, allegedly offering him the crown. Henry IV fled the Harzburg and set up camp in Worms. There he managed to gather some bishops for an attempt to make a military move on Saxony, but his support was far too weak. On February 2nd, 1074, he signed the Peace of Gerstungen. Cannot be described as anything but a complete capitulation. In a near full assembly of the great bishops and princes of the realm, Henry IV conceded the demolition of all his castles, dismissed his councillors, and gave a full amnesty to the rebels. Henry IV withdrew the garrison of the Harzburg, and immediately the Saxons stormed in. The Saxons' troops, it's important to note, were not just aristocratic knights, but comprised a lot of free or half free peasants. These guys were the first through the gate and began the demolition work. In the peace agreement, it was specifically stated that the demolition of the Harzburg should be gentle, respecting the imperial chapel on the site. Well, that did not happen. The Saxon commanders could not stop their enraged mob who tore down the chapel, stole the relics and, horror of horrors, pulled the remains of the salient princes buried there out of their coffins and threw them in the ditch like vile garbage. This profound insult to the honour, not just of Henry IV, but the realm as a whole, led to one of those sudden mood swings that will punctuate the story of the investiture controversy. The Saxon nobles apologised immediately and promised a thorough investigation and harsh punishment for the perpetrators. But that was not enough. The mighty princes, who did not treat their peasants any different to the way Henry IV had treated the neighbours of the Harzburg, suddenly realised these Saxon armies contained an unsettling large contingent of free peasants. And in 1073-1074 there had already been uprisings in many cities, namely Worms and Cologne, where the bishops had to run for their lives. Old friend Anno of Cologne was one of them. He only managed to get out because one of his supporters just put a door into the city walls near his house. This whole of Anno can still be seen in Cologne. Given the choice between supporting a potentially overbearing emperor or rebel-rousing Saxon, many of the southern dukes, namely Rudolf of Rheinfelden, took the side of Henry IV. Henry IV could finally muster his army to bring the Saxons to heel. The two armies met at the Unstrut River on June 9, 1075. What ensued was one of the most bloody and most painful battles of the 11th century. 
Though in principle it was Saxons against the rest of the kingdom, in reality many families were split. Fathers were fighting sons, brothers were killing each other in the melee. The unity of the kingdom created in the battle King Henry the Fowler had fought against the Hungarians nearby in 934 was trampled into the dust on that early summer's day. Henry IV prevailed in the brutal fighting. After the battle, his troops were let loose across Saxony, murdering and pillaging like it was the enemy's land. On October 25, 1075, the barons conceded an unconditional surrender. After a decade of humiliation and defeat, Henry IV had finally regained the position his father and grandfather had held. The magnates of the land recognised him as his overlord, and the Saxons, who had plotted to kill him since he was a child, were utterly defeated. Finally, he should now be able to go to Rome and take what had been his since birth, the imperial crown. Again, that is not what is going to happen. Next week, we'll find out how it comes that within a mere 18 months, Henry IV will find himself utterly friendless and about to lose it all, kneeling barefoot in the snow outside the inner gate of the castle of Canossa. I hope you will join us again.